Hi, this is Mimi, and welcome to my podcast, The Lovely Becoming. Today's guest is Dr. Erica Jaza, who is a double board certified child, adolescent, and adult psychiatrist, so just anybody and everybody, <laughs> is the new chief medical officer at Arise, which is a virtual inclusive eating disorder treatment program that I'll let you share about, but I'm so excited to have you on. Uh, thank you. I am so excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Tell us about yourself. What do you do? What do you love? Absolutely. So as you mentioned, I am a psychiatrist. I've been in the field for a long time now, over 15 years. And currently what I'm doing right now, I, as you mentioned, I'm the chief medical officer of a brand new company called Arise, which is really exciting. We are bringing eating disorder care to individuals in their homes, making sure that it's accessible. So it's a telehealth platform, but things that are making us a little different, we really just want to make sure that we are providing inclusive care, patient-centered care with a cultural lens, you know, just being sure that we're mindful and sensitive to all the different cultures that are being represented and honoring them, and also combining clinical care with community care, which I can share a little bit more about. So when I'm not doing that, I am probably working at my private practice called Catalyst Therapeutic Services, which is located in Durham, North Carolina, and seeing individuals with lots of different psychiatric conditions, including eating disorders, but also ADHD, anxiety disorders, OCD, and mood disorders. And I also am a consulting associate with Duke University School of Medicine, where I have a clinic specifically for medical students. Um, seeing medical students who are navigating their own mental health while learning how to be really good doctors for the patients and people that they serve. Oh my gosh, that is so cool. I feel like there are so many elements I'm excited to hear about. Um, <laughs> oh, especially... one thing I cannot forget. Oh my gosh. I'm also on the board. I, can't, I don't know how I've left this off, but I'm on the board of Project Heal. So Project Heal it's a nonprofit organization that's really, really near and dear to my heart. And they really are all about breaking down barriers to accessing care for eating disorder healing. So I serve as the chair of the board of directors and I've been on the board for a couple of years since 2020, actually. Oh my gosh. The, that's the best board I think ever. Our board. Yes. I have to say our board is pretty amazing. Um, you know, our, it, it really is because the CEO, Rebecca, she has really done such an amazing job of pulling together a dream team and really thinking of being very strategic and intentional about choosing individuals with, you know, all different kinds of expertise, choosing individuals who are representing lots of different marginalized or underserved identities. So we really are, I think we just represent all the people that we're really trying to serve, so they see our board, they're going to see a diverse, really unique, really intelligent board of directors that are like just killing it in their own realm. So it's it's really awesome and invigorating to be on a board with so many amazing people. Oh my goodness. I love all of this. And I really love, especially the clinic for medical students with, um, with medication, because I know there's a lot of stigma specifically for medical students with Absolutely. mental health and being good providers. So, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I think there's a lot of stigma, especially because when you think about getting board certified, sometimes there are questions about mental health and it can be very scary to disclose whether or not you're dealing with a psychiatric condition due to fear of like, if that's going to be used against you, if that's going to interfere with your being able to practice medicine. But I really am just so proud of these medical students and how brave and courageous they are and how they really are committed to prioritizing their mental health and recognizing that that's going to be important in order for them to really serve and to do all the things that they're doing in medicine. So it really is, it's been so rewarding to, to do that clinic. It really has. So I wish, I wish we had it when I was in medical school. <laughs> yeah, that's incredible. Oh my goodness. I have so many, oh, I'm going to come back to these questions, but I might come okay. back to that too. <laughs> okay. Yes. Yes. I'm very curious to hear about the messages you learned early on as a black woman about therapy and mental health. 
I think when I learned about your work and was thinking about these podcast questions, I was like, you know, this field of eating disorders and having black women is like very niche. I don't know too many black clinicians who specialize in mental health, let alone eating disorders. And in my own experience as an African-American second generation immigrant, grades and education were always very, very important. So I'd love to hear about what messages you learned growing up. Absolutely. Such a great question. Growing up, my parents were baby boomers. Um, So, you know, coming from that baby boomer generation and experiencing racism at a different level than, well, I can't say at a different level. It was at a different (laughs) level. We're experiencing it today too, but I just think it was, it was different in that the experiences were just so raw and they really found that seeking education and getting a job, you know, it's like, okay, those lessons were drilled into us as their children, that that's a way to get ahead. That's a way to be successful in a society like ours is to put education first and to put work first. There are a lot of messages, I think too, you know, that's the generation that comes from, you know, the whole James Brown, I'm black and I'm proud movement, right? There's a lot of pride in being Black and, you know, being who we are. And I think that may have been where, you know, this whole strong Black woman was even birthed, you know, Mm -hmm. this idea that as a Black woman, you have to have it all together. You know, you have to be strong. You have to be smart. You're a good mom. You're a nurturer. You're killing it in, you know, whatever field you're working in. You're, you know, taking care of your household and all the things and all the pressure that society places on Black women. I think I saw that, you know, in my mom, you know, being a really amazing, strong Black woman and the other Black women in my life, but a lot of pride coming along with that. And I think mental health was probably regarded as, you know, being being a weakness in some ways that if you needed to seek out therapy or a doctor for any kind of mental health condition that some, somehow or another that meant that you're weak or that you're you're not good enough or strong enough or, you know, that something is missing. And I think that probably was something I learned growing up that, yeah, I have to, I have to be the best. I have to make all A's. I have to almost have this standard of perfectionism in order to be accepted in society and to make it in society. So there wasn't really any room for any mental health, anything. It's like, oh no, that we don't have time for that. Blessed and not stressed, right? You know, there, that's where you hear a lot of the messages, even coming from faith. I grew up Christian. So, you know, a lot of messages that, yeah, you pray things away, you know, with your faith, everything, you know, you can get through everything, um, you know, that we don't need to be anxious or worried about anything, you know, that we we're able to do any and every and all things because yeah. <laughs> we are black women. And, we're <laughs> and then you realize, wait a minute, uh, that ain't true. <laughs> you know, and you start learning. And for me, I never anticipated going into the field of mental health. I did think I was going to be a doctor at a very early age, about the age of five. I wanted to be a doctor and I thought I wanted to be a pediatrician. But it wasn't until I got to medical school and had more exposure to psychiatry and realized, wow, you know, this is something, mental health is so overlooked in our community, in the Black community. And I really want to get into this field so I can start breaking down barriers, whether that's stigma, you know, educating folks about mental health and really helping us to just live fully. And it's hard to do that if we're not addressing those underlying mental health needs and issues. Mm -hmm. I love that. I think there's such a transcending narrative in Black communities where those similar prayer can fix it. You have to be the best, you know, and it's so hard when you experience mental illness or mental health challenges to push back because you don't have the resources or exposure a lot of times to things like therapy. And when you're constantly seeing it through the lens of like, that's weak, that's not something we do. Um, I think there's such a component too, of like, that's a white people thing. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And I've heard people say that even in my own family, (laughs) you know, like (laughs) 
we don't therapy we don't do that like that's for white people like white people go and especially you know I think now as a black community we're starting to embrace you know therapy and I'm seeing so much on social media which I think is amazing and you know foundations being started by different you know celebrities for mental health services which is awesome but I do think there's still something to be said about psychiatry and medication it's like okay yeah maybe we'll start to be open to the therapy piece but the medication piece that's still very much stigmatized but I think it's understandable too given just the historical context of um, medical care and especially as it relates to black communities and that mistrust of medical services and you know yeah why would you want to go to a doctor about that about something that's just so precious as our mental health when you know we see stories and and things happening to people and people being you know abused and mistreated um so i think there's you know there's definitely a historical context there too that can't be overlooked yeah i'm really glad that you mentioned that um it kind of reminds me too of this sort of underlying dynamic um especially i think for black men too where it's like i'm not going mm-hmm. to a white male doctor cuz that's kind of a interesting um connotation like in history with like going to the slave sort of owner to help you um or with toxic masculinity it's like I'm also not going to a female doctor and it's like Mm -hmm. you know I should be strong I should be taking care of the family and so there's not a lot of options especially since the field of medicine is still so white like there's not a lot of options there are not a lot of options I mean I think the last I think the last that I heard was out of all of the psychiatrists, maybe 2% of us are black, <laughs> very, very tiny. Um, and out of that 2%, I mean, those of us who are in the eating disorder world, I, outside of myself, I can think of two other psychiatrists who specialize in the treatment of eating disorders. So yeah, there are not that many of us, which I think is why we have to really pour into those who are in you know, elementary school and middle school and high school to get them into medicine, but also just making sure that our colleagues, you know, our non-Black colleagues are able to have conversations and learn about how they could be more culturally sensitive so that they can address, you know, challenges that come up with race within their, you know, with their patients and their clients. Um, So we have a lot of educating to do we got we got to train up these other these kids so that they come into the field but until that happens we really have to I think put resources and time and energy and finances into training folks so they can learn how to better better serve our community absolutely has to start early you know because there's so many Mm -hmm. access barriers along the way so many so many yeah Mm -hmm. Tell me about, um, you know, we've talked about eating disorders a little bit being very niche within the field um, of mental health broadly, um, especially for BIPOC clinicians. And I wonder um, if you notice any themes in how Black families approach their kids with eating disorders, Um, especially considering uh, family-based therapy is really a popular method. When mm-hmm. I consider thinking about if my family would have ever done something like FBT, <laughs> I'm like, no, <laughs> they would have been, you know, they have that distrust in the medical system and to even recognize the eating disorder, because that's not really mm-hmm. something we see in black kids in the media. Um, so right. I'm curious right. your experience with families. So, so many layers to that, um, because you're at, you know. <laughs> I think it does start with recognizing those symptoms and recognizing that, yes, it's possible for Black youth to suffer from eating disorders and getting the word out about that is so important. I'm so glad you're doing this podcast. You know, when you look up, if you Google eating disorder, or you Google anorexia nervosa or even bulimia nervosa, you're going to see a bunch of white girls, thin white girls, right? We are, we're not seeing any representation in the media when it comes to, you know, black and brown kids dealing with eating disorders. So I think because of that, there are two sides to it. So families may not necessarily realize when their children or teenagers are dealing with eating disorders. Um, And even if there is, you know, there are changes, sometimes 
those changes may be um, rewarded, you know, oh, look, someone else lost X amount of weight. They're looking good and blah, 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 you know, because we are conforming to these white standards of beauty, right? Um, and, and then on the other side, on the flip side of that, you have clinicians who, you know, whether they're therapists or dietitians or physicians who are not um, diagnosing eating disorders in these youth. And um, that's because of their own bias, right? Um, so there have been studies looking at that, looking at, um, you know, the lack of clinicians diagnosing eating disorders in Black women, um, looking at certain vignettes and what the, you know, the percentage of individuals who are being diagnosed with the eating disorder, same vignette. Um, I think the study that was done, is like a, a woman named Mary. Um, Mary <laughs> could be, Mary could be Black, she could be Latina, she could be white. And if you're white or Latina, you were more likely to be diagnosed with eating disorders. Still only got, they still only got it right like 44% of the time. So it wasn't like it was that great. Um, but when they saw a Black Mary, Black Mary only got diagnosed with an eating disorder 17% of the time mm -hmm. compared to 44 or 47%. So um, that just goes to show, yeah, we are not asking. We're not asking Black kids Black adolescents about their relationship to food and their relationship with their bodies. And if we don't ask, they're not going to volunteer that information. So they get lost, right? They fall out of treatment because they're neglected. And what can sometimes happen is that they suffer and suffer in silence for a longer period of time. So it's not uncommon then for individuals who are in BIPOC community to be diagnosed much later time a later stage in their illness and then as a result have many more consequences and, and complications associated with their eating disorder. So when I think about families, um, especially with black children and black youth, um, you know, I think I think it's complex. And there's one particular situation um, where I I recall treating an, a young lady who had been dealing with an eating disorder. I think by the time I saw her she was maybe 14 and she had been pretty deep in her eating disorder, but she, she was never diagnosed. She ended up being hospitalized um, to, all, to the point where she was transferred to an ICU mm -hmm. because they thought she had maybe gastric cancer. She had lost so much weight. She was, you know, she had so many medical issues, um, a weak heart and no one out of all that time that she was in a hospital, it never crossed anyone's mind that she might be dealing with anorexia nervosa well by the time she got to me um she was so sick mm -hmm. she was so sick and we tried everything in our power you know to help this girl and to save her and I remember her parents saying anorexia like what our kid is beautiful she's on a soccer team she's smart she's one of the smartest kids in her, in her class she's making all A's she's popular Black kids don't get anorexia. That's a white girl disease. They said, they said that. And it took a lot of coaching, a lot of educating, and eventually they were able to understand. But unfortunately, by the time everybody got on the same page and by the time we were able to really intervene, unfortunately, it was too late. And that little girl died. Mm -hmm. And I'll never, ever, ever forget her face or her family. And I think I carry her with me. And that's why I'm so passionate about educating people about eating disorders and especially about eating disorders in a BIPOC community, Black community, because our kids are dying. Mm -hmm. Our youth are dying. And sometimes we don't even know that they're suffering in silence with an eating disorder. So I know that's a, probably more than what you asked for, but I, I think it, it just highlights um, so many challenges and it highlights how we failed her as a medical system. We failed her in the family. And my hope is that, you know, now that we're having more and more people getting into the field, folks like yourself who are having a podcast, we can get the word out there and, you know, speak to these issues and really help to break down barriers to care and stigma, um, you know, so people don't have to walk in shame. I think sometimes families do as well if their kid is not eating if you're a parent and your child's not eating especially from, coming from a black family yeah. where we associate food with 
celebration and grief and you know there there's always a celebration there's always something associated with food i think in black communities and if you're not able to feed your own kids imagine the shame and the guilt that comes along with that so i think the parents of this little girl who they lost dealt with all of that shame and guilt and if i can just help one family access care sooner than for me that that means a lot because um, we, we just have a long way to go in terms of uncovering um, eating disorders and better understanding them in BIPOC communities. Wow. I feel so moved and grateful. Um, and as you share that story, I'm thinking, where was that in the news? Like, I don't think I've ever heard a story of a Black person dying of an eating disorder. But it's happening and we need to share their stories so that there's movement and there's shifts earlier on for that education. Um, and I think there's this sense of uh, mobility when we hear those stories. Yeah. I'm thinking about uh, Karen Carpenter and how I hear constantly, you know, when she died in the media, it was a big shift in eating disorders that this is serious. This is something we yeah. need to research and pay attention to. <laughs> And if these stories aren't told, then nobody's going to be paying attention to education and shifting resources. Um, right. Yeah. So that's really, yeah. Oh, and that, and that's a whole nother issue too, right? You know, when you think about, you know, um, kid goes missing, right? You hear about it on the news. It makes it to big time news, right? Mm -hmm. And sometimes our, our kids go missing and we would never know, right? Yeah. So I think that, I think even that is layered um, in complexity in, in terms of, you know, sharing the stories of Black children, Black youth, mm -hmm. Black individuals. It's almost yeah. like sometimes it feels like we're invisible. Absolutely. In our own society, yeah. And um, I was just reading, uh, we do this till we free us. Um, and I, the word that keeps coming to mind is this disposable where mm, if people yeah. are disposable, then it doesn't matter. And things can happen to us and there's no attention or care. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's why, you know, we are seeing such a big movement, you know, while it's, it's infuriating and it's sad and, and it really does make me angry. You know, on the flip side of that, I do see there's a movement of people calling it out and forward, you know, in terms of we, something has to shift, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, we have to, we have to start to prioritize um, these individuals and these communities that have been forgotten. Mm -hmm. And especially in the eating disorder field, I think, um, you know, we, we are seeing, I think, um, a renaissance, if you will, <laughs> in terms of, you know, people just bringing light and attention to issues that are um, affecting not only, you know, Black and BIPOC communities, but LGBTQI communities and, you know, other folks, um, disabled folks, boys, you know, um, boys and men, like, yeah, they, they struggle too. Yeah. <laughs> and they get overlooked as well. So I, I do see there being a shift, I think, in the eating disorder field um, as we are just trying to become more inclusive in how we are approaching care and eating disorders and underserved communities. Absolutely. I love that. Um, kind of shifting gears a little bit. Mm -hmm. uh, tell us about your neat combination of your master's in public health and uh, medical doctor empty. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. So while I was in medical school, I went to medical school at Duke University School of Medicine. And um, while I was there, we actually get a year where we get to pursue research or other things that we want to do. Um, some people decide to get a PhD, some people get a JD or MBA. Um, and right down the street, there, there's UNC Chapel Hill. And um, decided to get a Master of Public Health from UNC Chapel Hill in their leadership program. And, um, you know, that was really a great experience for me because I was able to think about not only health as like an individual kind of, um, you know, 
I guess on an individual basis, you know, in medicine, you're usually thinking about that one patient before you or their family and how you can help that individual patient with healing and whatever area they need healing in. Um, whereas at MPH and public health, you're really thinking about communities and how do you help to heal communities um, who are struggling with different kinds of eating or different kinds of health um, disparities, especially. And that was something that was really interesting to me was trying to understand health disparities um, mm-hmm. and how I could play a role in um, mitigating some of those health disparities. We still have a long way to go in this country, um, but I think that that was something that was always interested to me. And I think that's also what um, what kind of drew me to joining um, Project Heal, this nonprofit organization. So I, I don't really do a whole lot with my MPH degree, but I do think it causes me to just think about health in a different way and a different lens. And um, working with Project Heal, it allowed me to think about, okay, how do we help people with overcoming, you know, or healing from their eating disorders when there's so many barriers to care that exist? Um, You know, thinking about systemic issues and, you know, racism and white supremacy to food insecurity to lack of insurance or underinsurance, um, you know, so thinking through all of those things that can impact an individual and prevent them from getting the care that they actually need and to partner with Project Heal and doing some amazing work, you know, making sure that people have access to assessments and thinking about ways that people can navigate insurance. You know, there've been so many programs that Project Heal has been able to develop that really help individuals um, get the care that they really need and deserve. So um, that really has been uh, just really rewarding for me participating in that. And um, yeah, I feel like that's my way of contributing, you know, from a public health standpoint <laughs> as well. <laughs> oh, yes. And it, it's interesting while you were talking, I was thinking about what you said earlier about um, community care in Arise. Yes, and I'm curious yes. to hear what that looks like. Oh, wow. We are really, really excited about that um, because, you know, traditionally speaking, eating disorders, you know, we're working with the individual, maybe their family, but as you mentioned earlier, sometimes FBT is not necessarily um, the best treatment for certain individuals because of their, you know, cultural background, family background. Um, Sometimes it can actually even be harmful in certain communities. So, um, you know, what we're trying to think through at Arise is how do we combine clinical care with community care and um, supporting individuals so that they are getting their needs met even outside of the eating disorder. So really thinking through, okay, this person comes in, they're coming in as a whole human being. They're not coming in as just, you know, somebody with an eating disorder. How do we help them identify, you know, what their strengths are, you know, what their goals are for their lives, you know, in a way, what they're envisioning for their life, what's their mission and vision, and thinking about, okay, how does their eating disorder get in the way of them living their lives and living their lives fully? So what we've been able to do is have um, care advocates come alongside the patient or the member who are providing a source of support, you know, they're serving as being an advocate, an ally, um, they're coming alongside and saying, okay, you know, how can I help you You be accountable to your goals? Um, how can I help you navigate some of the challenges that you may be facing and experiencing? You know, when we think about social determinants of health, you know, there's a lot of literature, but how are we actually addressing social determinants of health on a day-to-day basis if we're only focusing on the behavior, the eating disorder behaviors and clinical behaviors, we have to think again about that person as a whole human being and how we're pulling in their other supports um, to help them navigate life. Um, and I, I'm really exciting, excited about what we're doing and, and combining that community aspect with the clinical care because I think it's so important. And I think it's, it's going to be a, a great model, not just for eating disorders, but I think just for health all together, you know, for mental health conditions, medical conditions, as we know, individuals with eating disorders have high rates of co-occurring psychiatric conditions and 
um, medical conditions and sometimes the eating disorders can exacerbate their psychiatric conditions and medical conditions and vice versa. So being able to help them by providing that additional layer of community support, you know, we'll be able to see those outcomes improve not only with their eating disorder, but hopefully with other, you know, their medical concerns and their other psychiatric concerns. So it's, I think it's, it's going to be really powerful. I think we're already seeing um, some really good data. We had a beta launch over the summer and already had some really good data with regards to people just feeling more connected to their clinical team, feeling more connected to their support system and feeling as though they're able to better um, have control over their eating disorder symptoms and not allowing their eating disorder to control them. Um, so it's it's been really powerful and I'm, I'm excited. We're launching in Texas next week, actually. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes, yes. And it's so cool, um, Mimi, because we are really working hard to find care advocates who are um, we just represent lots of different kinds of identities so that when a, a member joins our platform, they could say, hey, all right, this person, they look like me or wow, they're non-binary and they know what it's like, you know, to have an eating disorder and be non-binary and all the challenges that could come along with that. And, you know, so we, we are choosing care advocates who can represent, reflect the folks that we're, we're treating and the same for our clinical care team, our clinical care team. It's amazing. It's like the most diverse team I've ever been on. And I'm really proud of what we've been able to accomplish in a short period of time in terms of hiring a really diverse crew. So it's, it's exciting time. <laughs> oh my gosh. This is so exciting. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so happy to be talking to you about this. And by the time this comes out, you know, it'll be up in Texas. So that's so cool. Yes, that's right. Yes. It'll be up and running. So we are we are just really thrilled, and again, I think it's it's time that we kind of shake things up in the eating disorder field. And you know, if you look again, I said, okay, if we Google what an eating disorder looks like, we will see um, <laughs> lots of pictures of probably young white women. The same could be said when you Google a, a treatment center or eating disorder clinic. Um, oftentimes, yeah, the folks on staff don't really look like us. Um, the folks in leadership don't really look like us. So I'm, I'm really excited because our co-founders have been so intentional about um, building a really diverse team um, that's coming with so much experience. Um, it really is amazing. That's awesome. I'm so excited and Thank it's you. wild that it's, you know, 2022 and we're like, what does an eating disorder look like? But it's <laughs> right. <laughs> It's progress. <laughs> it's pro you know, baby, little baby steps. Sometimes <laughs> we just have to celebrate the little baby steps. Like, okay, can we please, 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 please move in the right direction? You know, doesn't mean we don't have a lot of work to do because we do. It, you know, unfortunately, um, there's a ton of work to be done. But I'm, I'm glad that there are some folks who are just saying, you know what, let's be bold and let's really, um, you know, create something that is different and unique and still. Um, providing an amazing standard of care and, you know, meeting people where they are, mm -hmm. um, you know, really seeing individuals for who they are and, you know, everything that comes along with, you know, their background, their upbringing, previous traumas, you know, how can we welcome all of that as messy as it can be, um, but to say, you know what, you're welcome here and we may not have all the answers, but we're going to meet you exactly where you are. And we're going to help you figure this thing out and help you navigate your own healing, you know? Mm. So, yeah. Oh, I love that. Sounds very much like it brings a lot of nuance and um, care to the individuals, different identities and different communities. And um, mm -hmm. I mean, just one thing that comes to mind is this idea of like, can you do you have access to the resources to meet your meal plan or do you have community support? Right. Like you need yes. to do that. So when you're, you know, bringing on a dietitian, right. Who's like, okay, yeah. So we need to talk about the fact that there's some food insecurity and how do we make sure you have access to the food that you need in order to help you, you know, just live with this illness. Um, 
to have people on the team who get that and who ask about it, you know, and for us to be very intentional about, you know, screening for that sort of thing. I mean, it's just, it, it really is like something I've, I've never witnessed, <laughs> to be honest, <laughs> um, you know, that we're starting that process at such an early stage of building a program and building a company. Um, so, yeah. I love it. And even noticing like not just hiring people who have diverse identities later on 20 years into the program, like building it right. up from that perspective. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yes. That these, you know, that it, it, it's important to have, um, you know, just different voices represented on a clinical team, but also on our clinical advisory board. That's another board where I serve, where the first time I joined that clinical advisory board meeting, I almost cried because mm. there was just so much diversity in that Zoom room, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, you know, so many people just using their voice on behalf of so many who are voiceless at times, um, you know, so to have a voice in a space like that where decisions are being made, um, it, it's profound, you know, and I, I, my hope is that in setting that standard with a rise that other people will see that and say, wow, okay, we, we can model our care, clinical care programs after a rise, you know, whether it's serving individuals with eating disorders or not, I think, I think we're doing something really unique in the medical field. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um. <laughs> What topics or niches within mental health are making you really excited right now? Um, maybe it can be like a new research um, article that you've seen or a trial, alternative approach, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. I think honestly, right now, I am just loving like all of the grassroots, you know, posts and, you know, social media, like just people talking about mental health in underserved com communities. For me, that is making me so excited. Um, and I think, um, yeah, just seeing like Gen, Gen Z, um, you know, <laughs> welcoming mental health and, you know, talking about it, not being ashamed to talk about mental health or to seek mental health services. So yeah, I don't know if there's like a specific research. I mean, there, you know, there are medications coming out all the time that I'm having to learn about. And <laughs> oftentimes my patients may hear about them before I do when they're watching TV. And it's like, yeah, all oh, that's cool, novel. But there's something to be said about this new movement of young people who are just not afraid and not ashamed to talk about mental health, to TikTok about it. <laughs> 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 um, to have IG lives and I'm just loving this movement. It's, it's something that I did not see when I first entered into the field over 15 years ago. Um, there was so much, you know, it, so many people living in secret and in hiding um, because it just seemed to be, you know, a weakness as we talked about earlier, you know, just something that our community didn't want to see access, um, didn't have access to even. You know, so the fact that people are, you know, saying that like, yeah, you know, if I'm going to pay for services, you know, for other things, I, I think I can afford, to, you know, for self-care, if I can get my hair done and my nails done, then I can pay my therapist too, because why that is a form of self-care. So it's just been so cool to see that um, and to see, you know, things like your podcast, you know, just getting the word out there and um, this last summer, you know, there being a BIPOC conference, eating disorder conference, you know, it's just things like that are really, really exciting me. It's like, okay, finally, you know, folks are seeing, we need to talk about these things and, you know, they're not going away. And it's, it's important to have these open dialogues to have discussions about it. So people who are sitting at home who have been in shame can say actually, okay, there's hope. And that's what's exciting to me is now I'm seeing, you know, these um, platforms where people are starting to have hope that they don't have to suffer anymore. You know, mm -hmm. there's hope that healing is possible. So that's what excites me. And that's what gets me motivated to do, to wake up and do what I do every day. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it so much. It's really exciting <laughs> to see that shift for sure. Yeah. This is an open-ended question. Um, so answer how you see fit. Where have you been and where are you going? Ooh, that is 
that is the question right there. (laughs) (laughs) Where have I been? You know, I can only really think, go as far back as this pandemic, you know, because this pandemic has just been intense. It's been intense. And being a psychiatrist, being, you know, and I'm sure this is true for, for you and for anyone else who has served in the mental health field, um, you know, taking care of others while you're trying to take care of yourself in the midst of a pandemic is really, really difficult. And, um, you know, things shifted and changed so fast, you know, going from seeing people in person to changing to uh, telehealth in a matter of a week. Um, And, you know, all the things that were going on with Black Lives Matter and, you know, um, people dying at, you know, these high rates due to COVID. it's it's been a lot, <laughs> and I I also during that time um, lost one of my very best friends to mm-hmm. cancer, um, who left behind her two year old and at the time six year old kids, um, who are now my god kids. They were my god kids even before she passed, but they are my god kids. And you know, um, having to navigate all of that while also holding space for my patients. Um, was really, really difficult. And I think sometimes as a clinician, you give so much of yourself, you forget that, oh, I have to take care of me too. (laughs) This this cup isn't just an ever flowing cup, like it has to be refilled. And um, when I think about those past, these past couple of years, it has, I hadn't been as intentional about refilling my cup. I'll just put it that way. So where I am going is really learning and being intentional about filling my cup and, you know, taking care of my own needs so that I can really be there for my patients and my colleagues and, um, you know, this community that we're serving, you know, the greater community at large. It's like I can only do but so much if I'm not taking care of me too. Um, but yeah. sometimes, you know, we talked about those messages at the very beginning, you know, sometimes they're birthed in you and it's hard to get rid of that. Like, I can do it all. I got this. Like, I'm strong. I'm, I am, a, you know, black, strong superwoman. And then you realize like, mm, no, ma'am. <laughs> I need a break. Sometimes you have to take the cape off and you have to be real with yourself and, and say, hey, it's okay for you to be human. You don't have to be perfect. It's okay for you to be human too. Um, even in all of the capacities that you serve, being a leader, you know, in a community and in your profession, like you still need to pause and rest and take care of yourself. So that's what, that's where I'm going. (laughs) I love that. Oh my gosh. I think it is really hard to, especially when we want to do those things and those things are meaningful to us to stop and say, like, I can't do it all though. Like, yeah, yeah. And, and and creating that space to grieve, you know, I think, you know, it was just a, such a heavy time, um, you know, and you're carrying the grief of so many people, you know, then it's like, oh, well, where do I grieve? Mm-hmm. <laughs> when do I have, when do I have time for that? Because there's no, there's no time for that. There's no time to grieve. But then grief will kind of sneak up on you. And um, it'll, sit you down and say, ma'am, you need to have several seats because you need to create the space. Yes. <laughs> so yeah, I'm, I'm learning, you know, to practice what I preach to, to, to my patients and my clients. <laughs> always, always. And when you do the, the work every day um, in therapy, sometimes I find myself saying the same thing to the third client and I'm like, oh, it's sinking in for me. <laughs> yes. Exactly. Exactly. I will definitely say that to myself. You know, I'm preaching to myself right now too. <laughs> I don't want to don't want to present pretend to have it all together. <laughs> yes. 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 Oh my goodness. Uh, what do you wish every person would know about eating disorders or mental health? One, you're not alone. You are not alone. You don't have to suffer in silence. Um Healing is possible. Hope is possible. And really for folks to realize 
eating disorders and mental health conditions affect everybody. They do not discriminate. <laughs> we may live in a society that discriminates every other second, but eating disorders and mental health, they do not. So it doesn't matter what race or ethnicity, if you're a boy or whatever gender you are, you know, um, sexual orientation, religion, it does not matter. They, they can impact you and it's important to just um, pause and, you know, check in with yourself, you know, to see what those needs are, whether it's meeting the needs from, you know, a nutritional standpoint or a mental health standpoint, um, you know, being able to pause and ask for help if you need it because help is available. Thank you for that. Ah, a fun question. What okay. are your favorite foods? Oh, okay. So everyone who knows me <laughs> knows I have a thing for donuts. Donuts and ice cream. I have to ask ice cream too. But ice cream is pretty seasonal because when it's cold, I really don't want ice cream. But on a nice, warm, hot day, summer, spring, ice cream all day but donuts that's like annual that's year round so I will say wherever I go I'm gonna find a donut place and I'm going to make sure like it meets the standard of gotta have that like little kind of crisp crunch kind of thing going but it has to be soft on the inside I love all different kinds all different ethnicities of donuts whether it's a churro or a Krispy Kreme like (laughs) all things donut so yeah (laughs) I think that's going to have to be the sound bite. All different ethnicities of donuts. I mean, really? (laughs) What I was going to say earlier was when we were talking about self-care is that Mm -hmm. you can go to, we were talking earlier before the podcast about um, Mo Nuts Donuts. If Mm -hmm. you have the pleasure of being anywhere near the triangle in North Carolina, you must Except Much. for when I'm there, because I don't like limes. <laughs> right, exactly. But you know, you can order in now. You can order your um, Mona. Mm-hmm, I would advise that. That way you skip the line. Yes. It's just, <laughs> I would say sponsored by Monats, but they that, that's not the case. <laughs> I know, but we may need to talk to them about doing that. Um, but listen, y'all, if you, for real, if you ever come to, the triangle and now you're here in the southern draw I'm not even southern but you will hear a y'all when you hear me talk about food or donuts or monuts um monuts is just special and their donuts are seasonal you know so right now it's fall I'm sure they have some kind of sweet potato pumpkin something orange um I'm gonna have to go tomorrow morning just to check on it <laughs> I'll let you Beautiful. know Mimi <laughs> honestly they're I was just remembering now their fall Earl Grey apple the cider. Earl Grey. It just. It slams. I mean, <laughs> let me tell y'all about this donut. <sighs> okay. So me and Mimi are having a moment right now because <laughs> that Earl Grey is just so special and delightful. It really is. It's genius. You can't really recreate genius. it. You can't. Yeah. So, all right. Yeah, we definitely have to add that to the list. Yes, a hundred percent. You might have this mm-hmm. episode be sponsored by Monets. We'll see. We'll see. <laughs> oh my gosh. The question I ask everybody to close, how are you becoming? Mm. Oh, what a beautiful question. Of course, when I hear that, I think about my First Lady Michelle Obama, um, (laughs) who wrote that beautiful book, Becoming, um, which spoke to me in so many ways um, when I read that book. And I think Becoming for me is acceptance of who I am, um, self-love, radical self-love. And, you know, when I think about I'll just give a little example here. You know, we talked earlier about messages that you get and receive as a Black child and a Black girl, especially. And I think I remember getting a lot of messages about hair Mm -hmm. (laughs) and, um, and, you know, what was acceptable in terms of hair and all the, the time and money and 
what we call elbow grease that goes into getting your hair straightened um, to kind of fit into the society, right? Um, because back when I was growing up, it wasn't acceptable to have natural hair. And over the pandemic, I became natural. I started to wear my hair natural and let it grow and cut all of the relaxer. And I've been getting a relaxer in my hair, which for those of you who may not know about this, a relaxer is like a permanent way of straightening, you know, chemically straightening your hair. And that's what a lot of um, black girls do at a very young age. And for me, I'll never forget, I was 11 or 12 in the sixth grade. So I didn't even remember what my hair curl pattern looked like until mm. I cut out all of the relaxed chemically you know relaxed hair and started to wear it natural um over the past few years and that was really hard mm -hmm. <laughs> um because I didn't realize how much of those messages I internalized about good hair bad hair I mean this is the whole thing y'all if you, if you don't know about it and you want to learn more about black culture you know learn about hair um and how sometimes we can internalize that as being good or bad. And, um, you know, if you're wearing your hair a certain way that you won't be accepted in certain spaces. Um, so for me, that was really powerful. And I know it seems so simple to talk about hair, mm -mm. <laughs> but part of my becoming, I think was starting to even accept my hair in spaces where I serve and where I'm a leader and, you know, in professional settings and, you know, even to the point where this year is probably the first year I ever even had headshots, professional headshots done with my natural hair. Up until this year, it's always been when my hair has been pressed out, you know, yeah. and straight and bouncy and curly. Um, but then I was like, well, I think I need to start wearing my hair natural even in professional spaces. Mm -hmm. So it seems simple, but it's so, it goes so deep. It goes so deep. And that's something that I'm really learning how to accept, but not only accept, but to embrace and to love, to love these natural nappy curls of mine. <laughs> wow. It, it is so profound. Um, I mean, I could go on and on about hair, um, but I know there's been a new, I think there's a new documentary on Hulu. Yes. Yes. I think it's Oprah Winfrey. Yes. Right. Um, the hair tales, I believe yes, is what yes, it's yes. called. Yes. yes. I, I can't wait to watch it because whew, I just have a feeling I'm gonna probably need some tissues and you know, <laughs> because there's so many messages that we get as little black girls about hair mm -hmm. and not being, you know, accepted and you know, feeling like we have to assimilate by having long, straight, curly hair. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oof. It, <sighs> it it goes deep. <laughs> <laughs> but it's so I will say it's so empowering and liberating mm -hmm. to like wash my hair and it's like all right y'all are being served with these curls today yes. <laughs> I don't know if they're gonna be frizzy or not but you're gonna the curls are just gonna curl and and that's it and it's very freeing it's very liberating so um yeah so that's <sighs> that's my becoming <laughs> I love that. I love this so much. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, Mimi, thank you. Thank you. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Likewise. I so appreciate being here today. It's such an honor. Thank you.